back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Once again, I am Jeremy Frank of KCF Technologies, and I am very pleased today to be joined by Sherry McCleary. Sherry McCleary will be covering some of the, the really interesting aspects of her career. Uh, she has a 30-year career with experience in the manufacturing sector, and most of that time in the metals manufacturing industry, which is one I've gotten to know a lot about recently. And specifically, Sherry's focus has been on deploying new processes and products. And after seeing firsthand the challenges of deploying successful smart manufacturing initiatives, she's taken her passion for bringing digital improvements to the industrial world to help create the Digital Foundry. Digital Foundry was created in partnership with Penn State University to help manufacturers remain current and competitive. And as executive director, Sherry and the soon to be open Digital Foundry aim to be a resource to upscale workers and provide companies with the resources and education, not just to tackle technology implementation, but to address the cultural, uh, the challenging cultural impacts that come along with that. So Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you for that introduction. Um, and just to mention, you said soon to be open Digital Foundry. We're in. I'm in my office. We uh, moved in in June um, at our grand opening, and we're still we're still not fully functional. We're still getting some things up and running, but we are um, in the Digital Foundry, which is very exciting. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Having not yet been there myself, I look forward to getting there sometime soon. Yes. We look forward to having you. Excellent. So so we'll be talking a good bit about the Digital Foundry, but I think it would be helpful for the listeners who, to um, you know, come from industrial backgrounds, manufacturing backgrounds, just to talk about your career some. You know, you've had a career, as we said, mostly in the metals manufacturing industry. Can you just talk about um, your trajectory and the roles that you've evolved through that's put you in the position that you're in now? Okay. So I spent um, a little over 30 years with Alcoa, um, who was uh, uh, started as the world's first and largest aluminum company. Um, they, then when that company went through um, some um, separation, some split in the company, I became a part of the uh, part of that that was called Arconic. So I finished out my 30 plus years uh, as um, a employee of Arconic. Uh, while I was there, I had actually started there when I was in undergrad as an intern, um, continued to work with them as kind of a co-op when I was in grad school and then uh, joined them full time where I came kind of came up through the technology part of the organization as a, an engineer, a project manager, eventually uh, managing teams of other engineers. Um, we focused on um, at the, in the technology part of the organization, all of the company's major markets. Uh, so it was a very exciting place to have a, a broad perspective of major global markets, including aerospace, automotive, defense, um, uh, some consumer packaging products. So it was uh, always uh, changing and always exciting and always something new to be introducing to those market segments. Um, and as I came up through uh, the organization, I, I led our um, defense team specifically for a while, focused on uh, technology deployments in the air, land, and sea segments of the Department of Defense. Uh, and then uh, when I finished my career there, I was um, the Director of Research and Development uh, and uh, kind of finished out in that role. 
uh, when I left uh, Arconic, then I, I failed at uh, early retirement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I went on to work for Kenna Metal for a little over two years to help start up a um, business based on 3D printing of hard materials for some of their major markets. It, can we go back just a little bit? Just you know, it's uh, it's on my mind that we had a a couple dozen interns at KCF this summer who just finished and did their capstone presentations, and a really close listener might be able to pick up on the fact that we both have roots in south southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, where where did you kind of go to school? Where did where did you come from originally, and how did you end up in an internship that led to this career? Okay, so I grew up in uh, a very rural part of Western Pennsylvania in Clarion County. Uh, went to undergrad school in Erie, uh, Gannon, um, and then uh, went to grad school at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Uh, so it was when I came um, to the Pittsburgh area for my internship with Alcoa that uh, I kind of set down my roots here, and um, Southwestern Pennsylvania has been my home ever since. And did you did you do the Alcoa internship while you were at, at Gannon, or was that while you? Yes, were at that was between my uh, junior and senior year, and I actually worked on a um, a project, uh, an automotive um, application for enhancing um, uh, the use of adhesives in aluminum body structures for the Audi A8. Uh, and it led to a, a publication in, a, in a, a journal. And so it was kind of a big deal for me as a, uh, <laughs> a junior, senior uh, in undergrad to have that opportunity. And um, and I was hooked at that point. I, I ended up coming back and uh, some of the things that I had worked on as an intern actually led to uh, some um, additional work that I would continue to build on um, for many years of my career in the automotive uh, market segment for Alcoa. Okay. And that's one of the things I definitely want to talk about. Did you, before I do that, the, the Carnegie Mellon degree, did you go into that right afterwards? Was that business or engineering or was it? It was uh, chemical engineering with a focus on materials. Okay. Um, While working, you didn't leave Alcoa to do that or was that right after? Yes. Well, I was I was continuing to work with Al, with Alcoa uh, as a um, kind of like a co-op and doing my master's. Got so. it. I did something similar. I think that I mean, there's so many students ask about that. You know, what's the right choice? Should I do an MBA? Should I do a master's yeah. degree? Should I do it right now or wait while I'm working? And you know, there's so I mean, I do I do have I do have opinion about the MBA because I did go on take a lot of MBA type classes a lot of executive level training throughout the years. Um, and I, I personally, uh, going back and doing that after I had some years of experience, thought I'm not sure of how much um, I would have been able to connect the dots and uh, gain a strong understanding in some of the MBA classes if I hadn't had some experience mm -hmm. in business already. So I, I'm a proponent of... Um, get your good technical roots and foundation because those will never go away. But some of the business type of um, classes and degrees, I think are more beneficial when you have some context. Hmm. That's right? interesting. Because those are not as kind of black and white as some of the technical stuff. For sure. Right. Because it's, yeah. it's contextual and applied. 
Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I did, I did an MBA as an entrepreneur. We were three years into the company and I was, I had a PhD mechanical engineering as my technical roots and was realizing that I could benefit from some of that additional context and business. And then, so I did it during that time. And I think it was really helpful for me as well at that point, because I basically mm -hmm. used all of the curriculum, all the classes and projects were almost consulting projects for, for our fledgling company. So, yeah. Right. Right. The other thing I took some advanced classes in, um, uh, law, uh, in contract law and intellectual property management, because again, especially if you're working in a technical field, uh, you don't realize as a young engineer or as a student how how much those kind of things are going to be a part of what you do. Okay. So that's a that's a natural transition to something that we touched on when we visited each other not too long ago. The you, you touched on, you know, building products and I assume most people are familiar with Alcoa, but between Alcoa and the, you know, now Arconic and Halmet, dominant provider of aluminum and aluminum materials and also finished products globally. Right. And is that a reasonable summary? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they, they always said uh, when it was still a, a um, Alcoa always kind of one under one umbrella from dirt to product because they owned everything from the mining of the bauxite that you extract the ore from to, you know, finished products that go out into the markets. Okay. It was a great uh, kind of getting that whole supply chain perspective being part of a company like that. Got it. And there's, there's, we might come back to some topics on that, but I wanted to start with at the end, you know, the finished product, because you were involved in something that was a really interesting part of, I think, American really global manufacturing history, which is, uh, comp, you know, the big auto companies starting to use uh, Alcoa's aluminum in, in body construction. Can you walk us through? And it, I mean, it touches on some of the intellectual property things you maybe alluded to. Yeah. Can you take us through yeah. just some of uh, some, some of what you can share from that part of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the automotive industry had been well. The automotive industry had been using aluminum going all the way back to the Ford Model T, and that aluminum was provided by Alcoa, a cast right here in New Kensington, a couple blocks from where I'm sitting right now. So aluminum was always in automotive. Uh, because of its um, cost and its difference in the way it has to be handled in the manufacturing environment, it would, did not make its way into really high volume production. Uh, for many years, it was showing up in you know lower volume luxury cars and high performance, um, like the Ferraris. We were all over the Ferraris because of you know performance demands. But Ford Motor Company made a decision um, that was a very bold decision. Uh, that they would go um, in the early 2000s towards aluminum uh, body structures for their F-150, which was and still is the highest volume production vehicle in the world. So that was a very bold decision um, driven by Alan Mullally, who was their CEO at the time. And he came out of Boeing and the aerospace industry and was kind of like, yeah, we've been using aluminum on airplanes for uh, a century. Why aren't we using more of it here? So... Mm. Uh, I had been involved in developing a technology um, pro actually for several years prior to Ford making that decision that was really an enabler to allowing them to use um, structural adhesive bonding uh, with a very robust performance um, of that product. 
And when I said it, this kind of goes all the way back to some of the work I did in my internship. Um, you know, years later, we were working on how do we make those processes more robust and reliable and able to survive uh, crash performance and many years in the field. So it was really a, an engineering modification of the surface of the aluminum that allowed this. Um, so Ford had been working with us on that product, had done a lot of testing. We had done testing with automotive uh, major OEMs all over the world on that product, and they all loved it and it outperformed other things in the market, but nobody was taking the leap to do it in high volume. So when Ford uh, made the decision they were going to go all aluminum on the F-150 body, they said, we need um, the best performance we can get out of every aspect of that body design. We're taking a lot of risk, so we got to minimize our risk by making sure we're using the highest performing products we can affordably put into this vehicle. So they came to us, said, we'd love to have this product, but there were a few issues. <laughs> One was when they were jumping all in with this high volume, uh, it required a lot of capacity investment for us. And even with capacity investments, um, the volume was much higher than what Alcoa alone could provide. So uh, we had to work out a deal to uh, make that available and licensed to our major competitors. Hmm. How was that so, for you? Yeah. I mean, playing that, <laughs> convincing your leadership to... To yeah, that was. I mean, that's that's a challenge. Like when you when you live in a world where it's always been about how do we differentiate ourselves from our competitors and how do we protect that differentiation in our intellectual property. Now you're asking them to take something that you've just been told is is a valuable asset to this major decision your customer has made, and you're asking your leadership to um, license this to your biggest competitors. So that. Um, I got to really use a lot of that uh, learnings over the years around managing intellectual property, managing licensing agreements, um, establishing market value for technology, which is, you know, again, a huge part of what you do when you're promoting new technologies and trying to get them in the field. Uh, so um, I've often told people uh, the technology is most often the easy part. <laughs> you know, it's then how do you get it to market? How do you work through these kind of details? Um, but, uh, you know, we were able to work out uh, some agreements with our competitors that allowed, um, and it was really the right thing to do uh, for the market um, because this opened up a huge opportunity for aluminum in the automotive industry, for automotive companies to kind of look a little bit more closely at what's the art of the possible with using lightweight materials and new approaches to body design. So it really um, was a game changer for the aluminum industry and, and to some extent for the automotive industry, which there were a lot of people who took a lot of risk, um, but it's still out there, uh, still selling a lot of them today, still the highest volume vehicle in the world. And I uh, was very proud to be a part of uh making that a reality. Fantastic. Now, it's interesting. The uh, I have a follow-on question to that. One of the books probably behind me is, uh, this is our you know little rec recording studio at the office, but we have some of the books that, that are really the prized ones that we, that we read here at KCF. And American Icon is one of those books. <laughs> and it tells the story. Of I was going to say, I, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. One of my 
one of my favorite like business books that I've ever read because I I was even prior to reading that book a big fan of Alan Mulally's of his style of his um, guts while still being a very personable um, and uh, dynamic uh, leader. So uh, somebody that I admire very much, and that's a fantastic book not only about him as a leader but about really, uh, you know, saving Ford Motor Company when they were in sort of dire straits. So yeah, I, that, that was a great, great read. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask is it so, so in addition to saving Ford Motor Company, when this is in the fallout of the financial crisis of 2008, and that's what the books really, they don't talk about the going to a aluminum body on the F-150. They don't go to the level. They might've mentioned it at one point, they did? but yeah, at a point when they're, when he's trying to save the company from total demise. He was also taking a major risk, calculated, but major risk still to introduce something that was radically different in the industry. And this was then a few years later, probably when the, the core of that work was happening in 2010, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's 14 all the way up to like 2014. Okay. So, so here we are almost 10 years later, you know, from when you were doing the work, couple questions. I'm curious, how, how did that go? You know, this industrial transformation podcast is mostly about technology and industry 4.0, but this, this, you know, switching to lightweight materials in vehicles is a pretty transformative thing. If you re- reflect on that 10 years on how, how much of an impact did that have? Like, do you think it was the right decision? And is, are there quantifiable things you can look back at and say other companies followed suit or, or they've struggled yeah, I mean, other companies did follow suit. Um, I think the um, and I think that we're we're entering a time uh, with respect to the just the evolution of the auto industry towards more electric vehicles. That light weighting is going to become uh, even more crucial. So the um, the energy efficiency that it drives when you can cut your your body weight to almost fifty percent. Uh, there's a huge uh, very tangible impact on um, fuel economy, but also on a lot of other uh, performance in everything from braking systems to handling to um, actually crash uh, energy can be managed well with some of the lighter weight materials. So, um, and, and that doesn't mean that it's going to replace um steel or there's a lot of new next generation steels and other materials but it opens up that which kind of gets to what what we were talking about about using technology to solve a problem technology material options whatever that technology may be is as a tool in your toolbox and as an engineer the more we can add tools to our toolbox the more things we can do so i think making that a reality put a new tool in the engineers and designers toolbox that this is something that's very viable. Uh, There's a lot of data to back this up. And now how do we take it to the next level, um, you know, and improve on it and add to it. And, you know, um, technology and innovation is always a very iterative process. So, so I think that as I look back on it, um, it's, it's uh, very impactful because I think it, it changed the, trajectory to some extent on what the material options are for mass produced um, vehicles and also even for those that aren't mass produced for 
those that require and demand uh, lighter weight for energy reasons and fuel economy reasons. Got it. Yeah, one one thing that's on my mind when I think about that that story because you know we were working with Al- Alcoa already a little bit at that time, and I was aware of this happening. Without you know, it was only recently that we connected with each other, but we were working with other parts of the company at the time. And what I remember, the thing that I think even, you know, I think most manufacturing experts, certainly in the auto industry, this was a memorable thing, you know, seeing this, this change was a big, big, big deal. It was transformative, but the competitive environment, and I'd I'd rather not mention who, actually, I don't recall exactly who, but I, I do, I distinctly remember what I think everyone would recall is there were, there were competitive uh, commercials on TV showing big piles of bricks dropping and, and cracking the aluminum because the aluminum is lightweight and not, you know, not able to stand up to the rigors of, of the field. So without talking about which company it was, how did that strike you from having been at the forefront of the advantages that come along with the technology? Did you think that was interesting? Did that did those other companies that follow suit or are they still kind of battling that? Uh, well, yeah, mo- most of them had already been doing this to some extent, not on the scale Ford was, but they were all using aluminum, had been using aluminum and, and body panels for decades. Um, yeah. And uh, and if you understand anything about the engineering of uh, body structure, um, those just were, uh, so the weight has nothing to do with it. You know, that's the, and the, um, you know, the dent resistance is governed by things like yield strength, uh, your kind of thickness and stiffness and moment of inertia in your design. You know, there's all these other things that play in that have nothing to do with the fact that it's lightweight. And it's not like you're making it out of the same alloy that you make a beer can out of. These are, you know, high strength, uh, heat treated alloys that, you know, we were putting them into military vehicles we were designing some of those alloys specifically to provide blast and ballistic protection mm-hmm. in armored vehicles. So uh, that, which was part of the, you know, the kind of the Ford campaign was around introducing aluminum as being uh, military grade. You know, the, there's so many alloys that, that are designed specifically to take those very tough environments. So there was a part of me that was immediately like, like, what are you kidding me? And then a part of me that was like, okay, well, uh, they just aren't understanding uh, that uh, from an engineering and a materials perspective, um, what they're showing is is not valid. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many ways around uh, designing around the kind of thing that they were showing and guarantee you that their, their competitor Ford was very cautious in making sure that they were not putting, this was their flagship vehicle. You, you, you want to make sure you do things right. Yeah. So, so suffice it to say, you noticed that also and found it amusing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe my takeaway would be don't believe everything you see on TV because it's not it's not a technical presentation. It's meant to you know advertise right. vehicles. So no no uh, right. no harm in that sense. But also, it is I think one of the things we talk about here. Another book on our shelf is Factfulness that you, to make educated, informed decisions as engineers when you're making really important choices you have to go look at all those factors and actually get the right answer because it, right. you know, obviously right. in this yeah, case, absolutely. that it happened and that, uh, yeah, it's just, it, I thought it was interesting. Well, so I, you touched on it a little bit and that's the next topic I'd like to go into is this idea of solving a real business problem. And and I think we can transition and talk a little bit about the, the aluminum uh, body 
thing, but but primarily on this podcast, we talk about technology and specifically the buzzwords encompassed by Industry 4.0 and Industrial Internet of Things. And I know from our discussions that you've seen a lot of those kinds of things also deployed throughout your uh, Alcoa and Arconic and Howmet uh, career. So can you just talk about what what that what drives that focus for you? So solving a real business problem is the way I think you articulated it, rather than just building technology for technology's sake or see, you know, companies feeling like they have to keep up with other technology, uh, other companies in adopting technology, but to really solve a business problem. What, what does that right. mean to you? So and, and I think that's where um, for me, uh, I'm a I'm a tend to be a little more of a strategic thinker. So I love that connecting the dots on uh, what's the problem you're trying to solve, what technologies are out there that can help you, and then how do you connect the right people to make that become a reality? So it's kind of the, you know, the problem, the technology, the people, they have to all come together. But um, that was something that uh, was very ingrained in me being in uh, a technology-focused organization for so many years is you don't go out and start spending money until you know what it is that you hope to deliver. Um, so you have to define what is the business value? Can you do it in such a way that someone's going to pay you for that? Uh, can you um, return enough on your investment to make that worthwhile? And what, uh, but it starts before you even get to any of those dollars and cents is um, what's the problem that someone else isn't solving that you think you can? Um, because if you don't know that, then nobody's going to pay you to do it. You're not going to know what a good return is, and you're never going to make a business case to go out and, and develop the technology in the first place. So um, I think sometimes it's, it's backwards where people come up with an invention or a solution or technology, and then they try to go out and find a hole to plug <laughs> versus saying, well, where's there already a hole to plug? that somebody hasn't plugged and then how do I go about filling that? So um, to me, that seems like the logical approach. Uh, and sometimes you, you, you stumble on an invention or a technology that you don't have a home for yet. Um, you know, like the old story of the, the uh, 3M post-it notes, right? <laughs> uh, but, um, but I think it, more often than not, the right approach is to, to figure out what's a problem in the world and how do I use technology to solve that? Yeah. Yeah. When I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, that's usually my story for them as well is start with a problem. I mean, in the idea of starting a company is kind of the extreme, you know, anybody right. that goes into it, starting with an idea, First of all, I don't think that happens very often. And second of all, it doesn't happen successfully. It's even right. less frequent. But right. if you start with a real motivating problem, and I've heard lots of smart people talk about it that way subsequently, I think it matches. What can you think? Well, first of all, so within your Alcoa and our Arconic experiences, is this something that that, that organization does particularly well? In your, or, or were you kind of an outlier within the organization? Or no, I, th I think that they did. And I think that, um, you know, I think uh, a good successful team has uh, a, a diverse mix of people from the perspective of not just that we look different on the outside, but that we think differently. 
So you need those people who are going to be the very deep analytical thinkers who are not necessarily up here looking at the big picture and the business value, but you better team them with somebody who is up here looking at the big picture and the business value and how to use that technology as a tool. Um, because they, it, it's often not the same people that do both ends of that spe spectrum well. So I think that uh, what um, my experience on in that organization over the years was that they had a nice uh, mix of people who had perspectives at kind of both ends of that spectrum and a lot of uh, talent to bring those ideas to a reality. Um, and and I think that uh, you, talk, you mentioned about how I kind of transitioned to this role and, and this industry 4.0 kind of stuff. And that was not my area of expertise. As I said, I was a materials person. I was very much on the product side of the business. A lot of this industry 4.0 and the smart manufacturing and automation was on the process side of our business. But I think that what, um, what I brought was, again, that perspective of being able to look at the technology that our experts in that area were developing and deploying and understand What's the value it's bringing? Where can we plug it in in the business to maximize that value? How do we replicate it across other areas of the business? Um, so it, it was uh, bringing that kind of uh, strategic um, map making mm. together with the people who were the real uh, deep technical experts that uh, allowed us to develop some of those technologies, deploy some of those technologies, and then replicate it across the organization for the, the biggest impact. Hmm. So that, again, is a really nice transition to the, the third big thing that I want to cover with you in the time that we have is the digital foundry. And, you know, in, in one sense, the idea is having a problem, which is, well, I'd like for you to state the problem that, that we're tackling there, that you're tackling, and I mean, the, the scope of it in, in one sense is, you know, enhanced manufacturing capability across the entire nation or even, you know, broader than that, really broader than that. So can you talk about that? What it, so with the digital foundry at, at Penn State, uh, but really not at Penn State, I mean, in, in New Kensington and really an industrial hub, can you just tell us about the vision of the digital foundry and what drive what you're really passionate about in, in moving forward, the problem you're solving? Yeah, absolutely. So this started out of a conversation with the chancellor of the Penn State New Kensington campus here uh, when I was still with Elcoa and Arconic. Um, we had a, a long-standing partnership with the local Penn State campus, uh, and um, they were looking at how they differentiated themselves. And I started talking with him about the this whole Industry 4.0 movement and um, how we were, uh, even as a large organization with a lot of talent and resources at our disposal, we were um, you know, challenged with how to bring more of this digital technology into our operations. Where do you start? How do you make the business case for it? How do you um, deploy it and, and grow it kind of in an incremental fashion? How do you get the team on board? Because there's a whole, always a whole kind of cultural element when you bring in new processes and new technologies. So I said, I, I, as I look at that in the context of a couple of things, one is, are we preparing our students to be ready to move into that um, new demands on the workforce? 
And second, being in a large organization with a, a lot of assets at your disposal and still seeing how challenging this could be, where do you ever start as a small business to figure out how you take that step, what technology is right for you, um, how to even get started moving down that path? But you know you might need to do it to stay competitive, but you're not sure where to start. So I said, I think if you want to be looking at a way to differentiate, differentiate yourself and also hopefully help our region, how do we develop what I called at the time a kind of a digital makerspace to help with um, current and future workforce skills, as well as uh, keeping uh, local manufacturers current and having access and visibility to those technologies, particularly the small to medium-sized businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of the genesis of the idea. And um, when I had the opportunity to, uh, I was asked if I wanted to apply for the position of being the executive director when this kind of got off the ground and was funded. I didn't really have to think about it too hard because I knew that I had reached a point in my life where um, it becomes more about what are what are you giving back? What's your legacy going to be? Not what's your accomplishments, what's your legacy? Uh, and so I thought this is a great opportunity to use um, my years of experience, my understanding of technology, my network of connections in industry uh, to give back in a very pragmatic way to the local uh, communities and economy. Uh, when you look at what led to the um, kind of the demise of New Kensington, where we sit, it was um, industries like Alcoa that started here pulling out. Uh, it's the classic Rust Belt story, right? So when when manufacturing and industry leaves, everything else goes with it. It's nothing has the multiplication effect that manufacturing does. So how do you do the inverse of that and start to make manufacturing healthier so that in return you make the economy healthier, you make the local Main Street businesses healthier, you provide more opportunities for you know, the, the uh, community members. Um, so that was kind of uh, the genesis of the idea and why I personally looked at this as a, a great um, final chapter in my career, I think. <laughs> so, and it, it's interesting times, of course, because here we are now two years in, you know, two, two and a half years almost into when the, the whole pandemic began and put a major shock into some of the very things that you're addressing. Uh, and, you know, now we have not only all these supply chain issues that make it all the more difficult for all manufacturers, but probably especially smaller ones to keep up. And we have a workforce shortage that's projected to get substantially worse. And the, the uh, you know, the, the great retirement that's in process all these things are creating additional pain and challenge around this very problem that you're, um, that you're tackling. Right. Right. I'm, I'm curious now that you're actually, so you've, you've opened in June and how are you feeling about, you know, if you, if you look five, 10 years down the road, are you feeling pretty confident about the ability to make a real impact on these very, very, very real problems that I think most people underestimate? Are you, are you feeling like you can make a difference and especially how, you know, where are those things going to come? So um, we're approaching this as 
kind of three primary areas of service we want to provide. The first is education and training, and that includes everything from we're working with local K through 12 school districts uh, through programs that Penn State New Kensington already had with some of those local school districts. We are working with the university. And then our workforce training, which we've already developed some really great curriculum that goes all the way from entry level, like somebody entering manufacturing field on the plant floor to engineering level training in these kinds of industry 4.0 technologies. So that's number one. How do you keep the future and current workforce moving in the right direction, having the right skill sets? That's one area we're focused on. The other one is you also have to keep the employers healthy. Um, we have over 5,000 manufacturing companies within 40 miles or so of us here, and 98 plus percent of those are classified as small businesses. So they are truly the backbone of the economy. And then that's not unique to here. That's everywhere. Um, so how do you keep those employers competitive, thriving, access to technologies that will keep them current? Um, and then the third piece is kind of just being a um, a resource where we can bring in guest speakers and live demonstrations and almost like small trade shows so that people don't have to travel uh, to find access and visibility into some of these latest technologies. So you ask, looking forward, uh, where do we see the opportunities for success? I mean, I think that the, we really got to get um, the workforce trained and we've got to get the, the manufacturing companies realizing where they can start to take steps to enhance their productivity, their quality, their efficiency, their energy consumption, all of those kind of things. And the challenge is getting people in this time when you said, you know, they've got all these other strains on the system. The problem right now, I think, is getting people to look up from all those problems long enough to realize that um, status quo isn't going to get you there. Um, and so I think the challenge we face in the next few years is convincing both on an individual employee or future employee level and on a business level that this is not something you can wait to think about. So that's, I think, what the biggest challenge will be in this environment. Mm. But I also think there's tremendous opportunity because so many of these things have become more visible. And I think there's a realization that technology can help solve a lot of the talent issues. Technology can help solve a lot of the supply chain issues. And if you bring manufacturing back onshore that was offshore decades ago, it's not going to come back the same way it left. It's going to come back being done with a very different level of uh technology and automation and digital processes. So um, I am very optimistic that we're going to have a positive impact, but I'm not um, blind to the fact that it's going to be a challenge. Sure. And but, I, I'm ready, but I'm ready to take that on. <laughs> I love, I'm glad you are. And you, you're just incredibly experienced and, and well-positioned to be able to have a big impact. As we've talked about, I've interfaced with quite a few different organizations that have been supported by or come from government initiatives. And without a leader like you in place, I've, I've seen a lot of them very much struggle because it's these aren't areas where bureaucratic solutions are, are typically the, the path forward. It takes hard work, creativity, connecting dots, all the things you touched on. And um, yeah. can, can you just one one last topic and then we're getting close to running out of time, but can you talk about the, just the, the national 
uh, context for this, kind of the fact that you are supported with funding from, the, I believe, the Department of Energy, but then also the the SESME Smart Manufacturing Institute? Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, so we've been in our uh, kind of the last year of kind of getting ourselves ready to launch. We've been very successful in securing uh, some um, government funding. We're funded primarily by a private foundation here in Pittsburgh, uh, but um, we also receive funding from the Department of Labor for some of our workforce training development from the um, Pennsylvania DCED for workforce training development. And it, we were also named uh, through funding from the Department of Energy as one of SESME's um, Smart Manufacturing Innovation Centers. There are uh, seven, I believe, across the country, and we were just named as one of their newest. Um, so we're very proud to be a part of that. And it's very well aligned. Um, and I have to say this because I always use this in every conversation. Our vision at the Digital Foundry is to improve lives and strengthen businesses through access to digital technologies. And that's well aligned with SESME's initiatives, which are really to what they call democratize smart digital manufacturing technologies to make it more accessible. So um, our, our missions and our visions are well aligned and uh, it brings us access to a national network of other innovation centers, of um, technology platforms that they're creating through funding from the Department of Energy. And, and uh, the goal is that it will help to accelerate uh, the access and deployment of some of these technologies, particularly for smaller businesses. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm smiling just because it uh, that the, the alignment of your vision and the SESME, you know, uh, national vision also aligns with where our company came came from, at least in the what we current currently do. Our whole industry 4.0 capability came out of a program while you were you know, in the early, early part of your Alcoa career, I was just getting the, our company off the ground. And this is in the early 2000s. They had a program, the Department of Energy. Uh, it was at the time called the Industrial Technologies Program, but it was called uh, wireless, Industrial Wireless Technology for the 21st Century, kind of pre-industry 4.0, pre-IoT. Yeah. And right. we, we were funded along with some of the big companies, but we were one of the small innovative ones. And it there are areas where the government funds the right thing and it takes time to percolate. But, you know, our, our mandate from the government is basically the same thing to bring those technologies in, but actually solve a real problem and get the workforce adapted and motivated to take advantage of it. So we're certainly yeah. aligned in that regard. Right. Absolutely. And, it, and I think, you know, the space has just in the last few years become more crowded. But there's so much work to do that I don't look at that as a problem or a threat. I look at that as, uh, you know, we, we've got to all be pulling in the same direction because there's a bigger picture here than just um, one business's competitive advantage. This is about um, providing a, a future that's uh, strong and bright and position us well as an economy. No doubt. I mean, I might just the one topic, the, the number that we talk about a lot. When the DOE tackled, set out to tackle this problem 20 years ago, they quanted, quantified two and a half trillion dollars of annual waste. So, you know, just one way to quantify the problem that largely today, 20 years later, remains mostly unsolved because it's a difficult right. problem deploying technology to eliminate waste and machine failures and so forth. And that, that I mean, that's a massive chunk of the GDP of our country, obviously. And it's real. 
and from everything I've seen, it's very real. And so I, I share your point of view that it's not about competitiveness. It's about can you actually solve a problem or not where others have tried and, and failed. So, yeah. Yeah. So I look and, forward to many know, opportunities to collaborate. The day, businesses have to make money and people are going to get paid when people make, when businesses make money. But, uh, you know, there's, there's those grander challenges that uh, um, hopefully drive a little bit more of what we're trying to accomplish here. Absolutely. Well, I certainly feel well aligned and I especially really appreciate having the chance to talk with you today, Sherry. This is wonderful. We look forward to future collaborations, especially yeah, that we're likewise. both kind of part of the Penn State network and here in Pennsylvania where the, you know, our part of the Rust Belt, I think is certainly not that rusty and it's going to get less and less rusty as, yeah. as we continue to do yeah. these things. Anything you'd like to share just in closing? Well, I just want to say I've, I've gotten to know a little bit about your business um, recently and uh, I'm, I am impressed and excited about working with you. I think you're a great example of exactly the kind of thing we were just talking about. Like how do you find, um, accessible, affordable ways for this technology to, to create better opportunities uh, for businesses and for their employees. So um, I'm excited about that. And as I'm uh, excited about being, um, I say, look at where we sit here in southwestern Pennsylvania, literally changed the course of history in the first and second industrial revolution. And I hope we're positioned to do it again in the fourth. I think we are. Uh, there's a lot of great um, kind of tech economy that's being created here. And uh, so we want to be a part of making that uh, a reality for not a few, but for many. And let's end on that. I can't say it any better than you can. Uh, thank okay. you so much, Sherry, for being here as a guest on the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Once again, I'm Jeremy Frank, and this has been Sherry McCleary of the Digital Foundry. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.